long now is set up to help people think about long-term issues, ones that actually reach out a couple of centuries. And probably none is more clear and present in that regard than climate change. And so that's an area I've researched in, I've written about, been around most of the serious players. And then along comes a book, it's all marked up, that is just full of news to me. And flipped my mind a couple things. And the guy who flipped that mind and might flip yours is here tonight, Jeff Goodell. I'm Stuart Brand, the curator of this series of talks from the Long Now Foundation in San Francisco. The Long Now Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to fostering long term thinking and responsibility. It is entirely supported by donors and members like you. Thank you for taking the time to listen to these ideas. And if you haven't already, please consider becoming a member to help inspire long-term thinking for generations to come. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that is working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payment from customers all over the world. Thank you, Stuart. Um, I don't know about flipping minds, but I'll do my best. Um, I'm totally thrilled to be here, um, in part for very personal reasons, which is that I grew up in Sunnyvale, and to be back here and to talking with you uh, tonight, it feels like a kind of homecoming for me. Um, I'm thrilled to be here because uh, I've had enormous respect for Stuart and for everything that the Long Now has been doing. Long Now Foundation has been doing uh, over the years. Um, Stuart and I were just talking in the back room, and not only he has the sort of um, long record of, a, of uh, helping us rethink and think differently about in the environment and the world we live in, but he's also been living in a boat since, what, 1983? <laughs> so there's vision right there about what's happening, right? Um, and the third reason I'm really thrilled to be here is because I just got back from uh, two months in Antarctica uh, on a research ship to go to a very remote part of Antarctica, on West, West Antarctica, on a joint research uh, trip with the U.S. and the British to look at um, a thing called Thwaites Glacier, which is sort of the cork in the wine bottle for um, the big ice sheets in West Antarctica and is arguably the most consequential uh, tipping point in our climate system right now. Um, in fact, that picture you're seeing above me there is a picture of the ice shelf of Thwaites Glacier. Um, we were the first human beings ever to go there. No one had ever been there before. Um, uh, the seabed around there and everything was complete black hole. When we mapped the seabed, we looked at the water circulation. I'll talk more about that uh, as in the talk. But it was a very profound experience because that glacier has been sitting there. And Antarctica has been more or less a stable place for about 30 million years. And we were there to, re to look at how quickly and how suddenly this could all collapse. And um, I'll talk about the dynamics of that. But it was a real exercise in um, 
the impact that we are having on our world in ways that um, even someone like me who, th who thinks about this a lot uh, doesn't, didn't really grasp. Um, and, and for me, two things were really uh, clear there. One, on that trip I really realized that even people who are educated about climate change and understand and read about it have no idea the scale and complexity of what's coming our way. For me, seeing Antarctica, thinking about these glaciers, looking at them up close, um, was very, very profound and really made me realize that even though I've been thinking about climate change and writing about it for 15 years, I really have no, had no idea the sort of immensity of what we're doing to our planet. And Antarctica really showed me that. And the other thing that I saw was that I think that I would say that the future of virtually every coastal city in the world is written in ice, is written in that ice sheet right there. Um, and thinking about that and about what the implications of that are is sort of what I'd like to talk about tonight, about how sea level rise is going to reshape our world in very profound ways, not just changing the literal map of the world, where the water is, where the land is, but also huge economic implications, huge political implications, uh, and, and, and all of that. And so I'm going to try to, in a few minutes, give you a quick uh, kind of tour, uh, some thoughts about what I learned um, in thinking about, in working on this book, and writing this book, which I spent four or five years on. Um, I'm in denial about how long it really was. It was four or five, I'm not sure. It was a long time. Um, but, but I wanted to say a little bit about myself, just to give you a sense of how I came at this. Um, I did grow up in Sunnyvale. Uh, this is me at the boardwalk in Santa Cruz. Um, and I only talk about this because, um, because I grew up with a, a sense of technological optimism that we can solve problems. You know, um, I was just visiting my mom yesterday, and, and I remember when she came home, um, uh, in the late 70s and said, I got a job at this place, this funny little place called Apple Computer. And I'm like, what? You're not working for a place called Apple. Are you seriously? That's never going to last. So, um, I, I, but, I, but I was imbued with that spirit growing up. And I actually worked at Apple myself for a little while. And, and for the last 15 years I've been writing, well, I've been writing at Rolling Stone longer than 15 years, but the last 15 years it's been focused mostly on climate and energy stuff, and that's what I've, that's sort of been my beat um, over, over time. And uh, I've written a number of books, um, one about the coal industry, uh, I wrote a book about uh, geoengineering, something that we can touch on um, today, and this latest book um, called The Water Will Come about sea level rise, which is what I'm going to talk about tonight. Um, and, I, and I want to start with just um, some thoughts about, about, um, about what I learned uh, while I was doing this. And, and this whole book sort of started when I went to Miami and saw what's called sunny day flooding. Uh, when you go to, uh, when, when you have in Miami now, it's gotten a little bit better because of some of the changes they've made. But I went to Miami Beach on a normal high tide day in the, in the fall, and there was three feet of water in the streets, and I was like, what is going on here? And I spent um, 15 minutes thinking about it and looking at it, and it became very clear to me that if you take climate change at all seriously, if you take sea level rise at all seriously, it's very difficult to see 
um, what kind of future a place like Miami has. There's a lot of real estate built right in the water. It's built on what's essentially Swiss cheese. It's a porous limestone that has holes in it. So it means that you can't build seawalls like you can in other places because the water goes right up the, uh, on the other side. And you have, of course, a political system there that is um, deep um, in, in denial. And so I wrote a, very, uh, a story for Rolling Stone about the future of Miami with a very subtle title called um, Goodbye Miami. Um, <laughs> and that caused um, a, a little, a, a little uh, chaos, shall we say. I, I tell my kids now that if I'm ever like, found uh, in a car with the brake lines cut, um, the kind of Karen Silkwood thing, you know, in a ditch somewhere, to go to the Miami Realtor Association to check it out first, because they're going to be the ones who, who, they were really not happy about this. Um, but that, writing that piece and thinking about that made me think, okay, well, so this is what's happening in Miami, what's going on in the rest of the world? And that's where, sort of where the book was born. I thought, okay, this is the problems in Miami, what happens in San Francisco, what happens in New York, what happens in, um, in Lagos, what happens in the Marshall Islands, how are they dealing with it? And I, and I traveled around the world. This is a kid I met in Lagos, uh, which was a very interesting part of the journey because I really saw that one of the problems with thinking about sea level rise and the consequences of this is this very modern notion that we have that the land is here and the sea is here and forever it shall be. And so we've built a lot of stuff with the idea that the land is here and the sea is here. And now, of course, we're realizing that that's changing. But in simpler places where they build in different ways, and you talk to the, this kid's family in Lagos and you say, what are you gonna, how do you think about six feet of sea level rise? And they're like, well, we can raise our house in the afternoon. We can do it tomorrow. Tell me when, you know, it's not a problem because they've built in a different kind of way, right? They don't have big you know, hotels in concrete right on the beach. They don't have giant airports uh, on landfill right on the water. It's not a problem to adapt in a place like Legos. And that was a very profound insight to me to see that although cultures like this that, have, that are not as wealthy as, as uh, the world that we live in have other challenges from a um, sort of infrastructure sense, they're way more advanced because they've built in a kind of more flexible way. I went to um, the Marshall Islands and looked at um, what's happening there. Uh, for them, it's not a question of like real estate investment or uh, losing their favorite beach. Sea level rise is an existential crisis. It's going to mean their country is going to vanish is going to go away, and what does that mean? How do you think about that? Are they going to have a virtual Marshall Islands? What happens to their fishing rights? What happens to their culture? What happens to their language? How do you preserve that? How do you think about that? That's what's happening there now in places like the Marshall Islands and other places that are facing a kind of extinction, uh, and they know it uh, from this. Um, I went to Venice. Um, of course, you couldn't write about anything like this without going to Venice. Uh, and Venice was great, you know, Venice, as soon as I got there, I'd been to Venice before, but I got there in this context, and I, my immediate thought was, this is so fantastic, this is how every city should be, you know, canals, and we made a mistake building cities on land, this is a perfect paradigm of how it all should be, and in a certain way, it is, but Venice is also in big trouble, because not only is, has it been subsiding over time, 
But the waters are, the sea level is rising all around it. The lagoon is filling up and filling up. And I'll talk a little bit more about the kind of wall they're building there. But the essential problem in Venice is that it is an architectural gem and they can't do anything to change that, right? I talked to the chief engineer of the city and he said, 500 years ago, they had all kinds of problems with subsidence and flooding, but they would just build on top of things. And so they would just like knock something down and build it and the city got gradually higher. And now if you're trying to build a new building, you know, they, they drill down and you hit like Marco Polo's house and then there's like Marco Polo's dad's house and there's Marco Polo's <laughs> grandfather's house. And it's just this layer cake of, of stuff. But you can't do that anymore. You can't knock, you can't touch anything. And so it's a huge problem. The city is frozen in amber. And so how do you deal with it then? What do you do? And I'll talk a little bit about what kind of solution that they've been thinking about. Uh, I met this guy, you might recognize him. Um, we spent uh, three days in Alaska um, wandering around talking about climate change and sea level rise. And uh, I think about that moment sometimes now and um, it's very surreal spending you know, three days with the president thinking, talking about climate change. And, but it is not as surreal as thinking about that same trip with our current president, what that would be like. <laughs> that would be like, very different conversation. <laughs> um, uh, and so all of this is what I did to kind of put together this book and to begin thinking about this in a sort of the biggest scale that I could. And the five things that I kind of came up with that are, I think are really important to understand about this world that we're facing and our future that we're thinking about uh, are these things. And one is that um, storms and hurricanes are like roulette and sea level rise is like gravity. And it's a very fundamental difference, and people think about flooding in different ways. Um, but it's this notion that, um, you know, we all watch when hurricanes are coming, we watch the storm tracks, and, you know, you're lucky if your relatives live or you live in the area, unlucky if you live in the area where it's going to hit or where it doesn't, and it's just like you watch this thing, and, and it's very dramatic and everything. And then, and then if you're hit, you're hit and your house is flooded or it's not, and then you rebuild or you don't, but it, you go back to normal, and then you wait for the roulette ball again, and you hope that you, know, you have 50 years or 100 years before the roulette ball lands in your neighborhood again. Sea level rise is completely different. Sea level rise is inevitable. Sea level rise is everywhere, it's happening, and it doesn't stop. The water doesn't go up and then come back. I mean, obviously there are tides, but the tides get higher and higher and higher and higher. And it's this incessant growth of, uh, of elevation of waters that is fundamentally different and makes it fundamentally so challenging. You know, I think that I mean, one way to think about this is, you know, we all know that the Earth has 70% of the surface is liquid water, right? There's oceans and 70% of the surface. But if you think about it, um, this is a, a NOAA uh, picture of the Earth, and all of the Earth's liquid water is in that one, you can uh, put it in that one, like, glob there, which is about 800 miles in diameter. And we have a fixed amount of water on the planet. There's not, Elon Musk is not making more water. You know, there's a certain amount that we have. And what happens as our planet warms and cools is it gets redistributed, right? So when our planet cools, you get more water, uh, more ice, sea levels go down. As our planet warms, we get less ice, sea levels rise. It's happened many, many times in history. Um, this is just a, a picture, of maybe many of you know about Doggerland, which is where you could walk from 
London to Paris to get a croissant back in those days. This was 6,000, 10,000 years ago. And the seas have risen now and Doggerland is underwater, although people fishing out there still pull up uh, uh, woolly mammoth bones and things from, uh, from the, this Doggerland area that is now underwater. But there's a great example in the Bering Strait, of course, everyone knows about the Bering Strait, the connection between um, what is now Russia and Alaska, migration pattern for many animals and of course humans also. All of that was related to sea level rise, right? And so the up and down of the seas, which was related to oscillations in the Earth's orbit, volcanic activity, other things like that. But what's happening now is very different. We are burning fossil fuels, and we are cooking, heating up the planet. And I just don't want to go into whole, that a whole lot, but I just want to show you this graphic that many, maybe a lot of you have seen, but I think it's just really powerful, and I just want to show you. This is a real-time temperature uh, uh, of the Earth from 1880 until now. I'll run it really quickly, and you'll see, of course, that the um, warming is in the yellows and oranges, and the blue is the cooling. And just watch what happens. Uh, it's been happening to our planet basically since we've been burning a lot of fossil fuels. And you can see that up until now, we're still early part of the century. Things are just sort of nothing big change. We're starting to see some warming, warmer. And watch the, watch the Arctic, the north, the top, what happens here. And a little bit of Antarctica too, but especially, especially the, the north. And you see the heating up. Heating up. And this is not a model. This is actual temperature measurements, right? So this is where we are right now. So when we talk about sea level rise, the issue is really two things, two places, the um, Arctic, Greenland, and Antarctica. There's some sea level rise in the 20th century has been because of thermal expansion. The, the water gets essentially expands as it heats up. There's some contribution from mountain glaciers and things, land, uh, mountain glaciers and things like that. But it's really the big ice cubes at each end of the planet that are the big issue. And you can see here that there's been a lot of heat in, in the Arctic and in Greenland in particular. And here you can see what's happening with that heat. So in just the last 15 years or so, four trillion tons of ice has left Greenland, uh, has melted from Greenland. And that's, and you can see this, uh, again, satellite, this is satellite data, this is not a model, this is what's really happening. And all of this land-based ice that is melting is going into the ocean, obviously, and this is what's contributing and will contribute um, to sea level rise. And you can see that it's along the coastal area uh, that is the, the biggest contributions. And so, um, this is what we're doing to our planet. This is why um, my book is called The Water Will Come, not The Water Might Come, or The Water Might Come Unless Everybody you know, Sells Their SUV and Buys a Tesla, or something like that. Um, we are setting this process in motion right now. And this is a drawing I had a scientist give me of, uh, Stuart and I were talking about this in the green room, um, uh, of, this is a period in, in the Earth's climate three million years ago when CO2 levels were about the same as they are now, about 400 parts per million. Temperature was about the same as, they are, as it is now. So this is basically a, 
past analog for our climate. And this line here is where the coast was at that time, on the, uh, where the East Coast was. So what this means is that we have between 25 and 60 or 70 feet of sea level rise built into the system right now. This is not some, so if we all stopped emitting all CO2 right now, if we just figured out some miracle way to stop emitting CO2, we would still have 25 to 60 feet of sea level rise built into the system. That right now that heat is in the ocean as that heat radiates out and we, re we reach thermal equilibrium, this is where we're going. The question is time scales, whether it's over a century, a number of centuries, how long it takes, but this is where we are going. And again, this is why the book is called The Water Will Come. We're not going to stop this no matter how good a citizens we are. We're moving into this world of adaptation, of change, of radically refashioning our world. And it's going to continue not just until 2100, which is always the number that everybody talks about, but for centuries, right? This is, this is a long time scale thing. The second big, big question, and the one that we were looking at in Antarctica, and it was the main purpose of our trip to Antarctica, is how high the water will come and how fast it will come. It's one thing if you talk about five or six feet of sea level rise over 300 years, oh, we can deal with that, you know, that's fine. We can slowly move our way away. We can build infrastructure. We can do things. If we're talking about Richard Alley, the arguably uh, ice scientist at Penn State, arguably, I think everybody who knows anything about climate science would agree that he's probably the greatest ice scientist or even climate scientists around right now. He told me a month ago that we can't rule out 15 feet of sea level rise by the end of the century. So if you think about the difference between 15 feet of sea level rise by the end of the century and six feet of sea level rise over centuries, it's a very different scenario. So this rate thing is what's really, really important about this. This is just a quick graph that just to show you the high-end scenarios of, of climate models over, over the last decade or so. And the only point I want to show you here is that they're getting higher. And they're, they're, there's, there's the, the uncertainty is moving towards higher scenarios rather than low. The, you know, NOAA now, the you know, top science agency in the US before it was you know, decimated by our president, um, had a high-end scenario of eight feet by the end of the century. And that's sort of where we're going. And a lot of that increase, that climb that you're seeing there is because of not Greenland, which I just talked about, but Antarctica, which I will talk about. But I want to show you just in your, our hood here what this means. So obviously this is the bay you know where this is here. And this is, this is what's called a bathtub model. So this is showing you what will happen if we make no changes, right? We're assuming that there's no walls put up, no, no adaptation. But just to give you an idea of what this looks like. So this is current, and that's seven feet, which is lower than the high-end scenario for even a conservative government agency says. So you can see that's a big deal, right? New Facebook headquarters, big trouble, right? I look at this now. So this is interesting. This is, this is obviously the North Bay. And you can see this is, this is today. And this is just one foot of sea level rise, one foot. 
So what's really interesting about this, and it's true about sea level rise in general, and it's true in Miami, it's true in many places, and it's true in the Netherlands also, is that the, it, it backs up in places that you don't anticipate. Right, so here look at Stockton, right? Stockton is at risk. And it's interesting because if you look at this model and then you, this is just one foot, and then you go to seven feet, it's not that different. It's, a, it's still different, but it's not that different. And so these risks of inundation and the consequences of this are very hugely depending upon the topography of where you are and where, you know, how the flooding will work in the Bay Area is very different than how it will work in Boston, how it will work in Lagos, how it will work in Bangladesh. It's all very um, particular. This question, though, of how fast is the big question. And what we know is that in the past, sea level rise is not some, I always had this idea that it's sort of like, like, you know, kind of the long, slow thing, kind of like grandpa driving to the store. You just sort of long, slow movement, you know, over time. It's not. In the past, it's moved in these pulses. So, for example, this, air, this thing called the meltwater pulse 1A, where the younger dries, where you see a sharp line there. We had 13 feet of sea level rise each century for three centuries. And we know this. This is not hypothetical. This is measured in in uh, paleo records and things. So we know that this has happened before. 13 feet of sea level rise a century, that is catastrophic. I mean, that is, you know, ev virtually every coastal city in the world would be completely inundated, right? Uh, and, and I'm not saying this is happening now, but we know that it has happened before. So one of the things we were talking about in Antarctica on the ship was trying to figure out what the mechanism for that was. And one of the things that might have been the mechanism for that is what I'm going to talk about in a minute and what we went to look at. Antarctica, big place. Big as the United States and Mexico combined. Um, I always, I had given this talk probably 50 times before I went to Antarctica and I always said that and it always sounded good. And now that I've been there and seen it, it's like doesn't come close to capturing the scale of, of what you see when you're there. We went to this place called Thwaites Glacier, which is right there on, in Western Antarctica, very remote place. Um, but is this sort of, uh, this one glacier is like the cork in the wine bottle for the entire ice sheets of West Antarctica, which uh, have enough ice to raise seas um, 10 feet. And it is this, particular glacier and what could possibly happen there that is the reason why all these models are getting higher and higher. And this is the reason why the United States and the British got together and spent $50 million, which is a lot of money for climate research, to do what amounts to an emergency research mission to figure out how fast the weights can collapse. And that's what we were there to look at. And this is a picture from the ship I was on. I, this picture was taken like three weeks ago uh, from a drone that we had on the ship. Uh, and I love this picture because it just gives you a sense of the scale of this place. That was an amazing day, I have to tell you. That was just, there were, you can't see it, but there were like seals, I mean, uh, penguins jumping everywhere, and it was albatrosses, and it was like nature's party that day. It was really beautiful with the water and the ice and it was, and at the same time, the, the sublime beauty of catastrophe um, because we didn't know it and I'll talk about it in a moment, but it, part of the weights had collapsed in real time while we were there. 
and we only know, knew that because of satellite stuff, but the day that this picture was taken was the day that the collapse happened, and some of these bergs that are, you see floating off are part of that collapse. I'll talk about that in a minute. But um, I want to talk about why uh, Antarctica is such a risk and why sea level rise is something that is very difficult to uh, categorize the risk on and why these risk scenarios are getting higher and higher. And that's this idea. Up until about 10 years ago, scientists thought when uh, ice melts, as it does in Greenland, it melts the same way an ice cube melts on your picnic table on the 4th of July, which is that it gets hot, the ice melts, it turns into a puddle, and the atmospheric warming is basically what's doing it. Well, they figured out about 10 years ago that in Antarctica, which everyone had seen as being a very stable, very cold place, no much, not much difference in, sur in surface temperature variation, seemed fine, no worries, it's all about, all about Greenland. Well, no, they were wrong. And what they figured out was happening is that there is warmer water um, being pushed up against these big glaciers in Antarctica because of a slight shift in the winds due to changes in atmospheric circulation. And those warmer waters are starting to melt these glaciers from below. And this is an example of how this works and why it's a, a frightening scenario. This is just basically, this, the uh, West Antarctica is like a big bowl. And this bowl filled up with water, and it froze. And it's, it's, it's created these enormous glaciers on this, what's called a reverse slope backwards. Um, scale here, again, doesn't do it justice, but if you go back on the bowl uh, uh, just a few miles, you get um, uh, two, two miles thick of ice. The, the, the bowl is two miles thick, so you, this glacier is, is as much as two miles thick. It goes back about 400 miles. But th this is what it looks like in an ideal state, in what the kind of state that they had always thought that Antarctica was in, which is where you have the whole thing frozen, you have the grounding line, which is where the ocean meets the ice, and then you have this ice shelf that sticks out like a fingernail from the ice. That's, that's the healthy ice sheet, and that's how everyone thought it was. But then people have realized now that these ice shelves are starting to fall, fall off. And that's, we witnessed that while, while we were there, these ice sheets, these ice shelves crumbling. And these ice shelves work as a kind of buttressing for the glacier itself to kind of hold it back a little bit. And as these ice shelves uh, collapse, the water is starting to get under the grounding line there. You can see it going over the edge. And it gets down underneath the glacier and it's starting to melt it from below in ways that you can't see from satellites and other kind of imagery. And the scary thing about this is that as it gets down underneath, there's a phenomenon that scientists have just really just recognized in the last decade, which is a, something called marine ice cliff instability, which basically says that any ice uh, wall over 100 meters high, if it's not sort of grounded, will, will immediately collapse. That it can't, the physics of uh, any kind of sheet of ice more than 100 meters high will fall apart. And so, what you have in West Antarctica is the possibility of a whole lot of ice collapsing into the ocean very quickly. A kind of runaway, because it's on a reverse slope backwards, so if it starts collapsing in front, it starts getting deeper and deeper, the, shelf, the glacier's higher and higher, and it all can just fall in very, very quickly. And that's what we were there to research, to understand how much water is getting in, how much fracturing is going on, and to try to understand 
could this happen very quickly? And was this the mechanism that we saw uh, in that meltwater pulse 1A in the past where we had 13 feet of sea level rise uh, each century for three centuries? And this is the scenario that happens. You get a, a runaway, essentially a runaway collapse. And this again is not hypothetical. This is something that, you know, they just spent 50 million, or they're spending 50 million dollars to send the best scientists in the world down there to try to figure this out because they're freaked out. I mean, so it's amazing. And so, but the most amazing thing was it happened while we were there. So this is a satellite picture. The red dot uh, on the left is where we were on March 2nd in front of that Thwaites Glacier there. Um, the area in the dark is, of course, is open sea where we were in the ship. No humans had ever been to there before. We were the first people that had ever been there. We were mapping the seabed, looking at the water circulation underneath. It was amazing. That picture that I showed you at the very beginning was taken on that day. And then uh, on the sixth, four days later, this whole ice shelf and part of the glacier collapsed, as you can see uh, on, on, the, on the right. Our ship, where the red dot is, is where we had moved that day. And we didn't know it in real time because you, it wasn't like there was some kind of big crumbling or some, like, there was not a CNN news alert that, you know, that, you know, the glacier around you is about to collapse. Um, but we did notice a lot more bergs coming, speeding by us and all of that. Um, and it freaked, once, we've, once we got these satellite images and realized what was happening, it freaked a lot of us out because like we're here to study this sort of idea of rapid collapse and it's happening like while we're here as if it's like mother nature performing for us and showing us like what can happen. Um, you know, there's some debate about how significant this really was and whether this was uh, real-time collapse uh, or just a kind of more natural evolution of the ice shelf and all that. Um, I think that most scientists that I've talked to agree that it, this is not a sort of sign of a healthy glacier and certainly part of the collapse process. But one of the problems is no human has ever seen ice sheets collapse in this way that they're talking about here. So they don't really know what to look for and what the oh shit signs will be. And, but I think most of the people on the ship certainly took this as a big oh shit moment, uh, for sure. Um, Second or third thing I want to say about sea level rise is that you know there's this idea that oh oh it'll be Atlantis you know that'll be like there'll be cartoons about it and that'll be terrible but until then we're fine no it's troubles start very very soon with flooding and sea level rise long before Atlantis comes along one of the problems is sewage systems right sewage systems uh, require dry land to drain. As soon as you start to get any kind of modest inundation, you have many, many problems with sewage, and I don't need to tell you about the implications of that with diseases and all that kind of thing. I once went wading through some waters in, um, in uh, Miami, and I was with a scientist who was measuring the, the uh, bacterial content, and he'd warned me to wear rubber boots that day, and I didn't wear rubber boots. So I went in my tennis shoes, my Nikes, and he's like, 
you shouldn't do that. And I was like, oh, it'll be fine, don't worry. And so I went, and then he did the bacteria count, and it was 30,000 times the state you know, level of health standards. So I took like seven showers that night. Um, but that's the kind of thing that is going to be happening and is already happening in places like Virginia and places like that where you don't have municipal sewage systems and you have a lot of communities on, on um, septic tanks. But that already happens. You get, you get um, marine invasions of creatures coming in, you know? Um, anybody can Google uh, octopus in parking garage, Miami, and you will see octopus floating or swimming around in parking garages among the BMWs and stuff uh, in, in Miami. And so you get a transformation of a terrestrial environment into a marine environment, which is can be cool if you like octopuses in your living room, but if you don't particularly want octopuses in your living room, maybe not so cool. Um, the biggest thing is, is real estate. And this is, of course, the question that I always get. You know, should I buy? Should I, I mean, should I sell? When should I sell? You know, but it's a huge, the implications are huge. Um, we're already seeing this in, in many places in, uh, the, on the East Coast, West Coast also. And it's happening not so much because people are seeing octopuses in their living rooms, although that is a problem, I guess, for real estate values, but it's more the fact that people are starting to understand that this is real, that you know, even among climate deniers, there's the tidal changes and stuff, and the, the, the fact that there's more sunny day flooding, there's more, this is happening more and more and more, um, is making people think, oh, you know, I think maybe I need to get out of here because, you know, the, the value of my house, which I'd always, you buy a house and you think it'll be there for 30 years and you think about the calculation of appreciation and all that kind of thing and there's all the ups and downs of the economy, but you don't think, oh, my house is going to lose all its value or half its value because there's going to be octopuses in the living room. But even the knowledge of people like me out there talking about the risks of Antarctica and things like that, it's beginning, and I'm not saying I'm influencing the markets, but I mean saying that the, the, the awareness that this is going to be a problem and that, hey, I should sell now so I don't lose uh, money in the future is um, a real and present thing. I mean, I did a talk in Asheville, North Carolina um, six months ago, and there was like, as many people as there are here at this talk. And I was like, what are you all doing here? I mean, I know it's a good book, but why are you here? And um, they had all moved from the Outer Banks and they decided they were gonna sell their place while the, really, the value of the house was still relatively high and moved to a cool place that was sort of like the Outer Banks, which was Asheville. So this is already beginning to happen in real time. And it has huge implications, as many of you would and probably know, and doesn't need a lot of work to imagine, for tax rates. Its property values decline. It has huge implications for tax rates, for tax revenues, I mean. Huge implications, you know, because the, the problem is, is that you get a decline of tax revenues at exactly the moment when you need to spend more money to build defenses and things like that. So it's a real nightmare scenario for a lot of communities. And I've spent a lot of time talking to coastal you know, uh, city officials and things uh, who are petrified about this. Even in Singapore, even in Singapore, I was just in Singapore and one of the chiefs of staff for, uh, for one of the top officials there came up to me and told me that they're very concerned about that there also, of people deciding that Singapore is too vulnerable and moving to safer places. 
Um, so so this, is a, this is a big problem that's happening now already, long before the whole Atlantis scenario. And then, of course, there's just the thing that people are going to be moving, right? I mean, climate change is obviously going to shift our landscape and our map in a big way. And as population leaves from these areas, as the risk of, of inundation grows, you have that same problem of loss of tax revenues. What do you do? How do you, how do you provide 9-11 service to communities where there's three people living there? You know, how, what are the obligations for road maintenance, for schools, all of this kind of stuff that you get in a kind of Detroit kind of decline happening simultaneously in coastal communities all around the country and the world. And of course, when you get mi migrations of people moving, uh, people moving out of areas, um, you know, that is a, the political implications of that are huge. To nobody who's, I don't need to talk about that too much. That's obviously the story of our time right now of people, refugees moving from one area to the other. And it's not just, you know, rich people in Florida deciding that they want to sell their beach house, but people in Bangladesh, people in Africa moving, getting, going to other places, all the politics of, you know, 15 million people in Bangladesh being inundated and needing to go somewhere, where will they go, um, are enormous. Um, so let's talk about how we'll deal with this. Um, this idea that, you know, there's going to be billion, we're going to do all kinds of stuff to, f to protect ourselves, to adapt to all of this. Some of it will be brilliant and, well, and good stuff. Some of it will be really stupid and uh, waste a lot of money. Um, uh, and here let me just talk about a couple of things. So this is in, in Miami Beach, for example, right now, they're spending $500 million to improve drainage, elevate some streets. Uh, put in a bunch of big pumps that are run by diesel uh, engines. Um, everybody hates them. They don't want these giant pumps that are like the size of a semi-truck in their, in their neighborhood with these diesels running all the time. Elevating streets, so you have uh, streets in, in Miami Beach that are three feet higher than, than the storefronts that are down below, and you have these pumps that are pumping water out. And, it, and it's sort of working in a kind of half-assed half way. It helps with the drainage. It's doing a little bit better, but it's, it's $500 million. It's only about a 20-block area that's really being focused on this. It's just the beginning. There's already been a lot of pushback on it, too much noise in construction. I don't want to pay more taxes, blah, blah, blah. So it's even in a place like Miami Beach, hugely at, threat, at risk, the, the um, engineering to do the simplest things is complex and expensive. Elevating buildings, obviously you can elevate anything. This is a uh, picture of the Tremont Hotel in Chicago being elevated in 1884. Um, no problem, they just got like 2,000 guys with wood screws. And it was like a quarter turn every like 10 minutes. And the 400 room brick hotel, they never shut it down. People, there's stories about people having tea while the guys are out <laughs> raising the building a little bit and a little bit. So raising a building is not a problem, right? You can raise a building. The problem is raising a city, raising a lot of buildings. And then what happens to your world when you're living in a higher building? And what, where does everything else go? What does that mean for everything else? And you can see examples of this. This is a picture I took on the Jersey Shore. People elevating their beach houses on the Jersey Shore. You know, yes, this person will probably be fine. But, you know, for a while. But, 
you know, what if the guy next to him doesn't elevate and abandons his place and it becomes this swampy, mold-infested thing? And the roads getting out there aren't elevated, so now you invest in a seaplane to get out there, and the hospitals are closed because the population has shifted. And so there's all these, it's like one thing to take care of yourself and move your house. It's a completely different thing to think about the context of this world that you live in and how do you fix all of that. And you can build walls, right? Obviously, we've been building walls for a long time. Manhattan, after... Uh, Hurricane Sandy, they did a design project where they're, they're basically going to put this thing called the Big U around Lower Manhattan, at least that's the, the theory. Um, whether it ever really gets built or not, we'll see. Um, and they, the, no one who is involved in that likes it to be called a wall. It's more like a barrier with amenities, which I guess is a wall with, cap a wall with cappuccino. Um, <laughs> But here's an example, I and mean, they are doing really interesting stuff, parks and, you know, they're building buffers and barriers um, in a very interesting way. This is the idealized version of it. We'll see what it actually looks like. They're starting with this area on the, on the Lower East Side that was the most vulnerable. Uh, it keeps getting pushed back and pushed back, but I think that will eventually um, get built. But uh, there are lots of problems with walls, right? I mean, for one thing, in places like Miami, you can't build walls. But the other thing is, is like if you're if you're building a wall in Lower Manhattan and the wall stops at 42nd Street on the Lower East Side, and you live at like 45th Street, you're like, well, wait a minute, you know, why not me? Let's go three more blocks, you know. I, what about why aren't I aren't I important? And then if you live in Red Hook, like you're like, well, you have you're paying this like Danish architect, you know, billions of dollars to build this really cool barrier with amenities in Lower Manhattan. But what about me out in Red Hook? Why aren't you spending billions of dollars with Danish architects out there? And so the social justice issues are huge when you talk about walls and how you would, how you would build walls. And then there's these fancy walls. This is what they're doing in Venice, which one of the engineers uh, who was working on it calls the uh, Ferrari on the seafloor. Um, which is a uh, wall that disappears when it's not necessary, so you don't have to look at it. You don't want to mar the visuals. And then when there's big tides or um, risk of flooding, the walls inflate and they move up and they block off the city. Problem uh, with this is that they spend about 25 years engineering it, thinking about doing it. They spent, it's very expensive, seven, about $7 billion, about a billion of which went to ski condos for various contractors and politicians. About 500 of them went to jail for that. Um, but the corruption aside, the problem is they built this whole thing that's just now beginning to become operational. Uh, and they didn't really factor in sea level rise. So it's like, oh, really? We forgot, sorry. So we're building this huge infrastructure that like after about seven inches of sea level rise will be obsolete and you can't easily adapt to. You can't actually just add an extension to it in some easy way. So it's like flawed engineering in a big way. And I think a lot of big engineering projects run this risk of um, just a kind of um, uh, short-term thinking in a, in, the, in a very profound way. And then when you think about how we're going to adapt and, and change our communities. You know, the, 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 these big infrastructure things are a big deal, a real big problem. And this is the Boston airport, San Francisco airport, it was the same kind of thing. They're all built on landfill. They're all built in low areas. 
So when you think about protecting a place like the Bay Area or like Boston or like anywhere, you have to think about these large infrastructure things. And so how do you begin to move airports? How do you begin to, you can elevate airports to some degree, but then you have all the roads coming to them. There's a lot of complexity in thinking about that. It's not just, oh, we'll just elevate some houses and build some walls and we'll be fine. There's Train tracks are a big issue. And this all became clear to me when I went to Norfolk Naval Station, which is the largest naval station in the world. I went there with Secretary uh, Kerry a couple of times. Kerry was uh, very aware of all the risks of this. I was standing on the deck of a battleship on the 250th anniversary of the Marine Corps when Kerry asked the commander of the base point blank, how long does this base have uh, to be viable uh, with sea level rise coming in the commander said 20 to 40 years, which when you think about the scale of this base and what that means, it's huge. But what's really important, I mean, that's a, the implications of that are huge, but what's really important and I, what I really learned in going to this base is that the military has a ton of money, right? They can do whatever they want, right? And they can, they can raise the docks, they can put walls everywhere, they can do, they can do whatever they need to do to save the base. But it doesn't do any good if the entire area of around the base is underwater. So if the railroads that bring all the munitions and materials to the base are underwater, it doesn't help if the base itself is okay. If the people, the 75,000 people who work at the base, if their homes are flooded or losing value because of flooding and they're moving away, they're not going to be able to get to work. If the streets are flooded, they're not going to be able to get to work. So the Navy has figured out that basically to save Norfolk Base, they have to save a whole section of Virginia, which is a whole other question for, very, for many, many reasons. But it really highlights the, um, the complexity of the, of the issues here. And the last thing I wanted to touch on with this is this idea that um, Opportunity comes as disguised as catastrophe sometimes. This idea that I think that, you know, one of the things I learned in reporting this is that the, the notion that we have figured out the perfect civilization, that, that we know we've done everything right and we can't do it in a better way is like really dumb. And that this is an opportunity to th rethink our relationship uh, with communities, with land, with water. And there's a, I met an incredible amount of really interesting uh, people and others, uh, engineers, uh, landscape architects, um, designers who are thinking in very profound and interesting ways. Um, one of the things that was very simple was this um, community center in Lagos, which was built by a Nigerian Dutch uh, architect. Uh, you're just using 55 gallon plastic drums and some obviously some simple lumber and it was a community center that was built in the middle of this lagoon. And it was hugely popular, very kind of striking and beautiful. Uh, unfortunately, it blew down in a big storm, so that was not ideal. Um, but it was never meant to be, it was meant to be kind of a, and nobody was hurt or anything, but it was meant to be a kind of prototype, and he's building a better one now. But it was a great example of really simple thinking uh, that, in a way that was completely adaptable and um, very uh, useful uh, and inspiring to this community. In the Netherlands, I was just there before I went to Antarctica, they were talking about floating farms, all kinds of things. The Netherlands have figured out they can't keep building dikes, they need to start thinking about uh, building a floating world. Um, and they're experimenting in all kinds of interesting ways. I'm not sure that floating dairy farms are where I would be investing my dollars, but they're thinking seriously about it. Uh, this is a, a rendering of a friend of mine who's a 
architect in uh, Miami. Uh, I asked him to give me his vision of what kind of things will be built in Miami in the future, and he has this idea of a platform city that's based on some uh, renderings by a, a Japanese architect in the 50s. Uses technology used in oil drilling rigs and things like that. And I, I can imagine that this kind of thing will in some ways happen, and that there will be some... Um, uh, this is a kind of prototype of some kind of an alternate future for, for South Florida. Uh, I visited a, um, the Netherlands where they are rerouting the Rhine River. Uh, and a very um, big engineering project because the river, uh, because of sea level rise, is backing up and flooding more and more often. And, and so how do they deal with that? Uh, they give the river uh, room to run. Instead of going around this curve and flooding into that town you see on the left, they have built an, an additional channel for the river so that when it get, the water gets higher, it has a place to go. Massive engineering project, but one that really solved the problem in an interesting way. Um, I want to do just quickly talk about it. The, uh, there was a project, a rebuild design competition in the Bay Area here. One project by uh, Bionic, a landscape architect firm here in the Bay Area that I thought was really interesting in San Rafael. Um, had this idea about uh, San Rafael is very at risk, it's very low. Uh, I know many of you probably know there's flooding on the highway there already. And how do you deal with a place like that? And the, Conventional scenario was, you know, building flood walls and levees and protections in that kind of way. But they had a bit, an interesting idea about um, gradually reimagining San Rafael and moving it to higher ground, building floating structures, and actually not trying to wall off the water, but adapt to it in ways, and gradually over time. So if you think about redesigning a city and, and, and sort of reimagining a place over decades, you can make these, you can transform it um, in ways that are beyond simple, let's throw up a wall and, um, and, and protect ourselves from the water. And so I liked that a lot. Another thing that, I, that is really happening around the world that I've seen a lot is just building new land. You know, people are, there's a lot, this is in uh, the Maldives, uh, but this happening all over the world. I saw it in Lagos, in many places they're just building new high land. And that's one way of um, adapting, is, is just building new land. And I think that you know, the value of real estate and things like that, I'm actually surprised, that's one of the big developments that has happened in the last few years that I have been really taken by, is how many people are just abandoning old places and just building new places. And that's, I suppose, a, vi a viable strategy in some levels. And the last thing that I need to just touch on is this question of uh, geoengineering and can we use large-scale kind of technology fixes. Uh, one idea of geoengineering many of you may know about, it's um, putting sulfate particles in the stratosphere, <coughs> essentially mimicking artificial, making artificial volcanoes. A little bit of, of uh, sulfur particles in the stratosphere can reflect away a little bit of sunlight and have a pretty powerful impact on cooling uh, the Earth. My last book was about that. We can talk about that more in discussion afterwards, and I know it's an interest of Stuart's. Um, and I think that there's a kind of inevitability um, about this, that we're probably going to do it, and, but it's not going to stop sea level rise. It's going to ha it can have impacts on surface melting and things like that, but it's not going to cool off the oceans in a way that is going to have a huge impact on sea level rise, especially in the scenario I talked about in Antarctica. So it's not a quick fix. Um, in, the best, in the best vision of it, 
it can be used as a way to kind of take some of the edge off warming and maybe buy us some more time for some of the other climate impacts, S reduce some of the surface melting. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, I think, a valuable tool to be highly controversial tool, but a valuable tool to be um, considered and probably will be considered and probably will be used uh, in the future. Just to wrap up, so um, just to wrap up, so this question of people always say, well, what do we do now? What, what do we do? And so the one thing I think is remembering this is not an alien invasion and there's no little green men coming out of spaceships with weird guns that we have to invent weird guns, the gamma guns to kill them or anything like that. All the things we need to do to deal with sea level rise we know how to do. It's just building differently in different places, changing our relationship with water. None of this requires massive innovation. It requires different kinds of thinking, different kinds of investment, but it doesn't require magic. Making risk transparent for everyone I think is really important. I think that one of the big problems with sea level rise and thinking about this is as I showed you in that inundation map of the Bay Area where Stockton was at risk, uh, most people in Stockton, I would bet, probably don't know that sea level rise could have a big impact on their world. Same thing with Florida. Uh, for example, West, if you look at South Florida, Miami Beach, of course, is at risk, but a lot of the risk from inundation there is uh, from the Everglades coming in, so the western part of South Florida is, is at risk as the coastal part. Cutting carbon pollution fast is really important for all kinds of reasons that have nothing to do with sea level rise, all the other climate impacts, but also the degree to which we can reduce the warming, we're going to reduce the long-term trajectory and trend of uh, sea level rise and maybe avert some of the more catastrophic tipping point kinds of things. Um, and then the final thing is this idea that retreat is not a dirty word. Uh, it kind of is a dirty word. Uh, nobody wants to talk about retreat. No politician wants to stand up and say, we're moving our town back 100 miles. Um, but that's essentially what's going to happen. And we can do it in one of two ways. We can do it like organized, thoughtful, let's do smart policy to begin to move ourselves out of risk. Or we can do it the Mad Max way, which is like, oh shit, there's water in our front yard, let's get out of here. And we know it because this is America, which scenario we're going to do. But, um, <laughs> but nevertheless, it's worth trying to think about it in a long-term intelligent way of repositioning our, our coastline. So I just want to wrap up with one final image. Um, this is my daughter, Grace. Um, one of the most profound things that I learned from a scientist when I was reporting this book was she said to me, um, Jeff, one thing when you think about water you need to really remember is that um, never to have a fight with war with water because water always wins. And she said, just go look at the Grand Canyon. So I did, and I took my daughter, and this is what water does over six million years. It carves canyons like this. And to me, this image symbolizes everything about everything I've been talking about, the power of water, uh, the promise of the future uh, in her children, in her future generations, and that's really what this story is about and why we're all paying attention to this. So with that, Stuart, I thank you very much. Where to begin? <laughs> um, the thing I 
that got me in your book is that you went to these places and you saw things. You didn't just see photographs, you saw the dynamics of what's going on there. And the shocker for me is I've been assuming that denial is something that people can kind of do at a distance and they can say, well, you know, statistically maybe there's more storms, but maybe not. And, you know, the models, the models sometimes are wrong and probably they're wrong on this. And, you know, the various hand-waving that goes on for denial at a distance. But what shocked me was that in many of the places you went where the water has already risen, there is sunlight, sunny day flooding going on. And I would have thought, okay, these are the folks who have actually realized, oh, it's real, it's increasing, uh, retreat is not a dirty word, I'm out of here. But in so many of these places, there's so much denial. I mean, Florida sort of is the world capital of denial, as near as I can tell. Political level, no, it's not a problem. Uh, and then at this sort of real estate level, Say a little bit about some of the things you found on the coast of New Jersey in the beach houses like you saw or, or that you saw in Florida. How does the real estate thing actually play currently on the ground? Well, I mean, one of the really interesting things that is, is happening that is completely contradictory to what I had ever imagined happening is that in places that have had serious flooding and, and inundation, um, they're not like... Uh, many places are, for example, one place in Virginia that I visited, they're not strengthening building codes and moving people out of the way. They're doing the opposite. They're weakening building codes and encouraging more people to build there because they're very afraid of, you know, this flight of, you know, of people leaving. So they're encouraging them to build by loosening building codes and opening more land for building. And so in some ways, the incentives are exactly the sort of opposite. And until you know, uh, flood insurance and other things really make it uh, untenable to in continue investing in these places. I, I um, you know, I'm, it's really surprising the, the level of we can just rebuild and, and bring it and, and do the way we've always done, you know? Because I think there's also this confusion that this idea that I talked about that's storms and hurricanes are like roulette and sea level is like gravity. I don't think people really grasp that. I think they think, oh, the water came in, but it'll go out again, you know? So I remember toward the end of the book, you report on a guy who's been experiencing in Louisiana uh, peculiarities of <clears throat> the government will, will bail him out in two ways. One is they'll pay him a certain amount, a uh, fraction of the value of his house to move somewhere else. But they'll pay him the full value of the house to rebuild it where it is. Right. Yeah, right. There's t all these perverse incentives and policy things. But there's also this amazing um, faith that our government will take care of us. And, and this is among, like, Trump supporters and things, you know? I mean, it's the cognitive dissonance on this issue is so profound, you know, that, um, that somehow we'll get bailed out and that the government won't let my home be worth nothing. And so I'll get paid somehow. And that's so very powerful everywhere I went. You would, <clears throat> you would think that Florida would be leading the way of, of governmental uh, taking sea level rise seriously and dealing with it, and, and yet it seems to be the, the epicenter of, no, no, don't worry, it's, it's, not, it's not happening, it's not serious, we don't have to do anything about it. 
Yeah. How, you know, what the hell is going on? What's that made of? Is it, well, as, as it gets worse, does the denial sort of build a higher wall against the truth? What's going on? Well, I, you know, you're, you, this organization is called the Long Now Foundation. I think <laughs> um, South Florida is the immediate gratification foundation, basically. Ah. Um, and in every way, right? So there is, there is no such thing as a long anything uh, in, 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 in South Florida. So, but I think that that's, so, so no one is thinking about mm. that, right? But I, but, I mean, there, that's not true. There are community activists. There, are, there is a kind of growing little um, consensus there that we need to take action. There is some change on building codes, and I, I don't mean to totally... But, take what action? Well, I mean, they're like changing building codes, for example. There is some change. And, and that's going to deal with... Right, right, right. But 25 I, to 60. Right, <laughs> right. But, but, but I have to say that in some ways, the sort of um, disposable culture of Miami and South Florida could, is in a way a kind of saving, it's the opposite of Venice, right? So you could imagine all of Miami being wiped out and then just rebuilding it differently, really quickly, just like thinking differently about it all because there, there is no you know, architectural gems. There is nobody thinking about, I mean, that's not true, <laughs> of course. No, I mean, I love Art Deco and all that, but I mean, in the real, in the context, I mean, no one cares about that. So they could do a vet, I mean, right? They just don't, right? You could bulldoze the whole thing mm. and start again, and that would be cool. As long as you had Norman Foster building some of the stuff and, you know, architectural digests were covering it, it would be fine. So they could do a combination of Venice in the old days when they just built something that was higher than the waters. Right. And Lagos, where they build a bunch of stuff that floats. Yeah and then you're cool, right. and you get to continue to have, except as you point out, all the whole infrastructure, the railroads and the airports and the roads and all right. that stuff are underwater, so it, it becomes a completely maritime thing where it's totally boats to get there? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not saying I think that's gonna happen, I think, you know, uh, but it's conceivable, but I think it's also conceivable that people will just leave, you know, and just, to what extent are you seeing leaving? You referred to it a little bit. There was more of it actually in your talk than in the book. Are you, and you mentioned certainly at the global scale, the climate refugees are increasingly going to be a big event and mm -hmm. out of places like Louisiana, out of places like Bangladesh and so on. What are you actually seeing now that is people actively, maybe quietly, maybe noisily, maybe in crowds, maybe singly retreating. How is the retreat, retreat going forward so far? Well, I think it's hard to, you know, really know because it's very anecdotal and it's very um, uh, different in different places. But I do think that, you know, in the, it's been like seven years now that I've been thinking seriously about this and watching this. And I do think that people are really beginning to think about uh, leaving in ways that they hadn't before, that real estate value is really a driver. They're thinking about leaving or they're actually well, leaving? Well, both. Both. Okay. But I mean, it's still not, obviously, a, there's no mass stampede out of South Florida, obviously. But I do think that this is something that is um, percolating through and in a way that is faster than I kind of had thought that it would be. And, and I think that a lot of people, um, I mean, a number of people have are leaving, you know, we're mm -hmm. seeing that, and there's been some new studies showing some of that. 
But, um, and I think that's just going to accelerate. As Are there any scientists, social scientists, population scientists, demographers looking at the actual numbers of movement away from rising waters? There's been a few studies, um, but not very many very good ones, no. But there has been some better studies, on, as I showed in, in one of my slides, about uh, depreciation of real estate uh, in some of these coastal areas. Um, and that's you know, ultimately going to be a driver of, of retreat and of depopulation of people moving away. Yeah, all of this is sort of before the, the fact. I want to know who's moving and where they're moving and, <clears throat> you know, anyway. Um, Bob Kopak uh, asks, what will change people to decide to try geoengineering, your former book? Is it a pulse of bad news, some action by some nation, or, you know, if, this is the famous gradual change problem. Right. It's not only slow, it's scattered. Right. And uh, different people are paying attention or carefully not paying attention to different things in different ways. Is any of this a, some kind of a pulse that says, okay, let's do some geoengineering and, and get serious? That's a good question. I mean, I, I don't know what the mechanism will be that will uh, trigger that, if anything. Um, uh, and it's same as the same in the same vein, I don't know what the trigger will be that will make people really do something dramatic about cutting carbon. You know, about you know, <laughs> we're talking everyone's talking about the Green New Deal now, which is a great thing, really ambitious. You know, the idea of actually taking that politically seriously and actually doing, you know, actually building a, a, a real movement around that, I don't know that um, that will happen, but there's, there's certainly encouraging signs. I mean, I don't know, you know, uh, you could imagine I just went to Antarctica and I just saw a big blowout. And um, you could imagine if next year there's a bigger blowout okay. and people start to say, oh my God. This is this thing is starting to really fall apart, and um, you know the blowout that I saw. There's still some argument about you know what it really means, and is it are we really watching a collapse of a major ice system in real time or not? Mm -hmm. And but if it's not far from being able to say yes, we're seeing that, and mm -hmm. I think if you had that and you could see images the way I saw images, and you could people could see that this giant glacier and ice sheet is falling apart before our very eyes, I think that could trigger. Okay, could Thwaites, Thwaites, worst case, goes, um, basically uh, falls apart and goes into the water, raises the water, a uh, foot, two feet in a decade? And what, you know, what, I'm looking for the pulse of the, the Kovac asked about. Is there a pulse that might come out of Antarctica and is it then the first of many pulses, or is there a pulse and then we have a chance to respond? Or how does, how does it look like that would, would occur? Well, it's not, we're not going to be standing on the beach and like, you know, a tsunami comes because a big ice cube fell into the, in, into, uh, <laughs> into the sea in Antarctica. It's not going to be like that. Right. But, you know, like I said, Richard Alley, greatest ice scientist in the world, arguably, uh, and very conservative guy, says we can't rule out 15 feet in by the end of the century. Uh, and so if you count seven, that back. Seven feet by 2050, is that an increasing rate or no, a I think rate? No, I think it's not, I think it's an exponential rate, not a linear rate, so. Rats, and the lower parts of an exponential <laughs> don't look like you, they're you, serious. You're clamoring for catastrophe? <laughs> well, in answer to the question, what does it take? Yeah. Because this comes to the fundamental question that you're seeing in 
New Jersey and then all these places, are democracies capable of responding to a long, slow threat like climate change? Yeah. Sea level rise in particular. Right. That's a very big question that, you know, I certainly see no indications that it is, but um, I might be totally wrong about Cause that. Because the not on my watch thing keeps playing out. Right, right. Because the short, the election cycles and all the, all the short-term political, you know, impetus and, and motivations are not to deal with this kind of stuff and not to make the hard decision about moving San Francisco airport or doing the kinds of things, the investments that one needs to do to really adapt and to change uh, our world. And so it's easy to just keep kicking the can down the road and kicking the can down the road. And I, I, I don't know how that, how that gets fixed. Um, Singapore versus, say, Netherlands versus, say, Denmark. Singapore's somewhat of an autocracy, carefully non-corrupt. Are they taking all of this seriously in the way where they actually do stuff? How about Netherlands? How about Denmark? Well, Singapore has done a lot of things, um, you know, in the way that they've built. Um, but they're still, as I said, I was just there, and they're still very concerned about people leaving there because of the perceived risks of, of flooding and inundation. I mean, I think China's a great example. China's done a lot of really, uh, uh, you know, simple, not simple, but um, things like, you know, when the Olympics came there, just shutting down all the coal plants, you know, around Beijing in order to reduce air pollution. And you could never do that in America, right? You could right. never just say, we're shutting down all the plants and, you know, tough, you don't like it, too bad, you know? Mm -hmm. um, that, in a way, is the kind of thinking that needs to happen, in a way. We need to just say, we're, we're doing it differently now, and we're sorry there's gonna be some pissed off people, but this is the way we have to go. What particular threats from sea level rise is China facing? Oh, well, they have, you know, huge threats. I mean, I unfortunately would, did not go to China. To, I've been to China a number of times, but I didn't go there for this book, so I can't give you, um, like, on-the-ground uh, uh, reporting on this. But, I mean, all the kinds of models show that cities like Shanghai are, are hugely vulnerable. Uh, in the same way, the Delta inundation all around Shanghai. I mean, they have uh, as serious of sea-level rise issues as the U.S., no question. And what is the conversation that... Strategic discourse in the government of China in relation to all this, what's that like? I have no idea. Okay. I mean, I, I really, I, I just, you know, I mean, I think they're really focused on clean energy right now, and they're doing amazing kinds of things with solar and electric cars and all that. I don't know where the adaptation sea level rise conversation is, and I don't, I don't know anybody who does either. And they're planting no. lots of trees. Uh, a couple of questions. Andy Lee asks, what's most surprised you about Antarctica? Uh, clearly, that's the sort of most recent, and the, it seems to have multiplied. And sort of after your book, maybe you're going to do another book. Uh, but it's like Antarctica made your previous book into sort of 5x or something like that, in, in, in a new level of seriousness. Is that what came out of Antarctica for you? Yeah, I mean, Antarctica, I'm still processing it. It was such a profound experience. Um, and I think what first thing that comes to mind is what I mentioned early in the talk was about this sort of just the scale of and complexity of the system that we're messing with. I mean, the notion that Antarctica was more, has more or less been a stable place for 30 million years. I mean, mm -hmm. there's some debate about 
ice sheet retreat and things like that. But more or less, the ice sheets that are there now have been there for 30 million years. And, and um, you know, the fact that we, by burning fossil fuels for 200 years, are really messing with that system. And, you know, these enormous glaciers that I went right up to in, my, in, in, in the ship and um, saw, you saw that picture of, the, of the, the Nathaniel Palmer, the ship I was on, in that bay of icebergs, and just the scale of what's coming. I mean, it's just, when you think about the, the amount of ice and, and the, once this begins to crumble and become unleashed, and, and what that, the implications of all that, it, it just blew my mind. And I, I don't know how to um, process this. I've been to Greenland a number of times. I didn't have that response in Greenland at all. Greenland, I get it. I see how it's happening. But Antarctica is just a whole other thing. I mean, it's just terrifying. And that is terrifying. a Because, you know, 10 years ago, I recall, oh, we're all worried about Greenland. Yeah, we're yeah. worried about the Himalayas. But yeah. don't worry about Antarctica. Yeah. It's fine. Totally. And then they thought, oh, there's warm water getting underneath these glaciers. Oh, we didn't realize that. <laughs> and then this idea of marine ice cliff instability became clear. And, and now, all of a sudden, when you think about what is the sort of scary tipping points on our climate system that, that are most urgent right now in real time for our future, I think most people would say Thwaites Glacier is number one or number two. Mm -hmm. you know? I'm up there with the collapse of the rainforest and things like that. And will more data is one is more datable, more data attainable than what's already been done. That will be significant in terms of the ground line and things like that. And is that research in progress? And do you expect in three or four years' time we'll know a lot more of the level of threat from Thwaites? Yes, I think that we will know a lot more about the level of threats from Thwaites. But I don't know that we'll ever. I mean, we talked about this a lot on the ship with the with the scientists. You know, this is there's no human analog for this. We've never witnessed a collapse of a major ice sheet in human history. It hasn't happened in human history. We don't know what that looks like. We don't know what the signals are and the signs. So it's like <clears throat> having a theory um, about cancer or something, but never having witnessed it at all. And so I think that the scientists, I know all the best scientists that I've talked to, they're like, you know, we don't know if we're going to be sort of like, you know, the sort of blind man and the elephant in the room. We're like, what is this thing and how can we figure out if this is happening or not? So it may not, I mean, I basically, and I think, I basically think that we're, uh, we're not going to know that it's in real-time collapse until after it's in real-time collapse. I mean, it's, it's... Holy shit. Yeah, exactly. Okay. That's, if you could summarize my reaction to my Jupiter article, it was, holy shit, yeah. Well, uh, Aaron B., uh, we're starting to get these initial last names, interesting, says, this all makes me very anxious. How do you sleep at night? <laughs> <laughs> I just elevate my bed a little bit. <laughs> I live on a boat, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But how do you sleep at night? I mean, it, it, hmm. You're a, you're a Cassandra. You know something is coming that lots of people pretend is not coming or say, yes, I understand it's coming, but it's not that serious. And yeah. you're saying, actually, it is coming. You can't stop it. And it is that serious. Yeah. Where does that put you in relation to the world and you in relation to sort of to your mind? Well, and also my relationship with my kids. I mean, I have three kids, you know, and I think about their world. 
But you know, this is a really weird thing to say, but I'm going to say it anyway, um, is that my understanding of the fragility of all of this and of the what's coming um, has in a way made my my life and my perception of places, it's, it's, it's improved my life in a big way. Because, say why? Well, it's like, it's like think of a relative in your life who, you know, is a kind of a cranky uncle he always ignore and he's like, he's a pain in the ass. And, he's, and then you like find out that here he's got cancer and is going to die in six months. And then you start paying attention to him. He's like, oh, he's not so cranky. He's a good guy. And you start looking at him and you're thinking about him and you appreciate him and all that. Is this civilization you're referring to? No, no, this, <laughs> no, no, no. This is Miami Beach I'm referring to. Oh, okay. To. So when I go to Miami Beach now, I walk around and I think, Oh, I look at it in a different way. I think, oh, this is not going to be here for long, so I really pay attention. And this is great. I take a lot of pictures, and it, but it makes it more vivid in a way. And, and, and I think it's, it's, it's kind of a great thing. And I know this sounds totally weird, but it's true. Um, it, 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 it's like a hanging clarifies the mind idea. It, you see it more clearly. Sorry. I love that. That's it. <laughs> Kiss it goodbye. It's, just, it's really lovable and it appreciates being kissed. Yeah. Uh, Don S. X. if you had $200 billion a year to allocate, um, how would you use it to help heal the planet in the circumstances you're talking about here in context mainly of sea level rise, but all across the board? $200 billion. Wow. Hmm. Is that a lot or is that a little? I don't know. That's what I'm trying to figure out. Uh, you know, I, I, I think of it all, I, I don't know what I would do. I mean, in that sense, I mean... Um, we have the money. Yeah. I mean, as you pointed out, the military has all money in the world, right. but they can't save all of Virginia. Right, so, right, right. I mean, I would probably, like, do something like, you know... Uh, <clears throat> and I would do something about... Um, uh, gerrymandering and about, you know, politi our political process and to change. Okay, that's pretty local. Well, I mean, I just think that, you know, a lot of the problems are not, of dealing with this are not so much like I would build seawalls or try to invent some kind of better solar panels or something. I think mean, that's kind of stuff is being done. It's a lot about how do you change the political response? How do you change, build a system, whether it's a, like you, the question you asked, can democracy deal with this? And so maybe one way of thinking about dealing with climate change is dealing with democracy and trying to think about democracy and changing our democracy. Because certainly the democracy that we have right now that elected a president like we have now is not a promising path for dealing with problems like climate change. See? All right. You, you, you talk at the end here about transparency of risk. How do you see that getting realer for people? Yeah, that's a, that's a hard question. And I, you know, that's about kind of education broadly, uh, not about you know, like school education, but, you know, um, Governance, got local officials making it more clear the risk, uh, financial uh, tools becoming more transparent about about the risks, insurance, you know. You think once we start seriously adapting, then it makes further adaptation easier or harder? Mm, that's an interesting question. It'll depend on sort of how it's framed. If it's framed as, well, it's okay now, we've, we've adapted and so we're okay, like Venice, uh, only if it goes up six inches, all of that work and all of that just becomes, it might as well have not done it. Right, right. So it sounds like what you want 
people to do is kind of a horizon doubling where they prepare for what they can see is coming in a certain period of time with the understanding that there's yet more right. of that. And so you're asking them not to adapt once, but to take on a perpetual frame of adaptation about this whole thing. Right, which is really hard because I think that I mean, it drives me crazy in the whole climate uh, discussion and debate is because it's often framed as how do we fix the climate? How do we fix this problem? We're not going to fix, it's not like a broken leg where we're like, oh, we just go get some splints with some solar panels and we'll be okay, you know, in a few months. Uh, we're not going to fix climate change. Climate change is a thing that is, we're going to be living with now in, in perpetual time. And so how you think about it in that context is, is really difficult. And there's not going to be a fix for sea level rise or a fix for drought or anything like that. There are going to be various adaptations, various ways of dealing with it, better and worse than others. Um, but we're not going to fix it. It's, it's, it's our world now and this notion that you know, the land is here, the sea is there, and we live in this, in this because the, the world that we see is the world we think is always going to be there and has always been there. But what climate change is teaching us is that the world is in huge flux, and we're, it's moving around very quickly, and we're going to have to live in a rapidly changing world. And so how do we think differently in order to embrace that is, I think, one of the big questions at the center of all this. That's the evening. Thank you very much. Thank you, Steve. This is Stuart Brand again. If you enjoyed this talk, consider becoming a member of the Long Now Foundation. For less than the price of a book or movie, monthly membership supports this series and keeps you connected to a whole world of long-term thinking. Thank you for listening.